Education Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined in our postmodern conservative series by Scott Yenner, professor, author of books on the family, and indeed a collaborator. We write together for The American Mind and other publications, and we are very interested in family and character, and this is not an urgent issue if you judge by political news, by who's burning what and for what reason, or who's attacking what and for what reason, but it's a fundamental issue for society. Without anybody noticing it, without people talking about it, we have arrived at an unprecedented situation in American history. Most young people are not married. This explains far more about rioting, unhappiness, or any other such activities than any of the claimed ideologies or public speeches. And so today, Scott and I, we will be talking about this aspect of our lives, of our regime, of America, private life, and especially the education of character for family, and the way character is being educated right now, which is the opposite. Scott, thanks a lot for joining me. I enjoyed reading your book because it is so insightful, not because the subject is pleasing. We have many things to complain about, but you write so well. Your style is so full of allusions to Tocqueville's style from the beginning of the introduction and of chapter one to Aristotle and to all sorts of other authors. It's a pleasure just to read, even aside from what you have to say, which, as I said, is often sobering, but in a certain way edifying. At least we know what the problems are when we read what you have to say. But before we get to that, please introduce yourself to our audience since it's the first time you're here on the podcast. Yeah, my name is Scott Yenner. I'm from Wisconsin, and I've got a job out here in Boise State in 2000. I've been teaching political philosophy here since I got my PhD at Loyola University in Chicago. So this is the first time I ever really left the Midwest to come out here to Boise and to teach at Boise State. As I teach political philosophy here, one of the things that's always difficult is to connect it to the students' lives and to give them an account of why it matters, what Machiavelli writes or what Aristotle writes. At the beginning of my career, I wanted to talk about the modern concept of conquering nature. And what I found myself doing was always talking about conquering nature in terms of family life, because family life seems to be one of these things that really manifests nature. It manifests the fact that children come into the world without development, without language, and they need to be taken care of. Men and women are different. So as the philosophers announced the idea that we should conquer nature, I would illustrate that with how we should control or design institutions to take care of these natural things, universal things about human beings. And after doing that for five or six years, teaching Hegel, teaching Simone de Beauvoir, I said, you know, this would be a good class to teach. So I did the idea of nature and family in modern political thought. And by the time I was done teaching that class, this would be a good book to write. So in the late aughts, I wrote a book called Family Politics that goes from John Locke to John Paul II on how modern philosophers have dealt with marriage and family life. And I tried to show that most of them structured things around the idea of marriage as a contract, but also that marriage was something that helped us conquer nature. By the end of it, you have either people who reject modern thought, which is what John Paul II does, or radicalize it and want to abolish the family, which is what these later feminist thinkers like Simone de Beauvoir did. It was a very rewarding book to write. And this next book, the one we're going to talk about today, is called The Recovery of Family Life, Exposing the Limits of Modern Ideologies. And it kind of picks up the story where that first book left off. 
what do these ideologies that dominate modern cultural life, feminism, contemporary liberalism, and sexual liberation, teach us about the family? What do they get wrong? And how can we combat them is kind of how I've organized the book. So these are two of my books, and family is one of my interests. I've also written a core document set on American Reconstruction and a full-length manuscript on David Hume that was published a few years ago. But this is uh, the kind of the hook that I hang my hat on when it comes to uh, what I write in public and in my monographs. I could tell you are interested in Hume because you quote him on marriage, which is not something most people do. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. We tend to think of modernity and the modern revolution as conquering nature rather than human nature, as issuing in technology rather than political technologies, what we call institutions. But political institutions and political science was the original modern revolution before there was a modern natural science, before there was a Newton or any great achievements. And it is therefore more foundational. And it is, of course, also part of our everyday lives. It's nearer to us in a way we don't usually confront. As I said, one uh, saw last year riots, burning down cities, all this stuff, and many, many complaints. But it was never things like, it's hard to get a job. My life is not stable. I don't have a lot of friends or I'm not married. Society is failing me in all these fundamentally human ways. It was always incredibly abstract claims about justice that had nothing to do with any of the people who were screaming about them. And that, I think, is a very good sign of how even in the midst of anger or hatred, People cannot say the obvious. People dare not say that they are unhappy, that their own lives are a mess. Although, of course, from another point of view, when you see people losing their minds, the first time you think about is maybe they have problems. (laughs) Yeah, I think that is really a fundamental juxtaposition or a fundamental point about modernity. Modernity doesn't promise happiness. It promises autonomy and the extension of human power. And when you grant human beings that, there is no guarantee that they will be happy. And one of the things you can see in classical literature and dystopian literature is when you grant human beings these great powers, the ability to make a Frankenstein monster, it's monstrous. It doesn't make the creators of them happy, nor those who are serving or being served by those creations happy. And so I try to end the book on that fundamental point. All of these ideologies, feminism, sexual liberation, they don't promise happiness. They promise independence or human power or autonomy. And they actually kind of deliver on those things. It's just that the people that experience them or love them are, in turn, less than virtuous and less than happy. And those two things kind of go together. Yeah, there is a connection between modernity and democracy. Modernity's autonomy and democracy's principle of freedom are very similar. But they might not be the same thing, actually. One sign of that is that as modernity advances, people are markedly unhappy. And oddly enough, the people who have a public claim made for themselves as most progressive, most modern, are the most unhappy and the most hysterical about it. And that is a very good sign that anybody can see that there's something really wrong happening here. That, as you say, autonomy might not make for happiness, that power might not make you a virtuous person. And that is the thing that is no longer conceivable, that there are limits. In, in your book, you keep saying we should reject the rejection of limits for knowledge of limits. No limits, no limits. You, we should know our limits. That is to say, we should try to avoid misery and figure out what it is that will make us happy. And that will mean that, uh, like it or not, we are going to fall in love at some point. This is where political life, social life, community intersects with autonomy or freedom. 
because we all insist I am me, but also I feel deep weakness that makes me want to go out and indeed get married. Everybody would like to, apparently. And that is because we feel that being who we are or our freedom or autonomy is simply insufficient. This need for completeness, however, does not need to issue in marriage. As I said, we are now in a social situation where, although nobody talks about it, most young people are not married. Now, this has never happened before in America, so it's eventful. It should be breaking news, as people say, since it might be breaking American society. It is unprecedented, so it should be our live, enacted science fiction literature. And yet it is not talked about. This is not what we wanted out of our radicalization of modernity, out of our modern autonomy. And yet it is what we've got. And that therefore bears talking about, because it is not possible that the social phenomenon at the level of the continental democracy, the most modern of the modern nations, could have come about by accident. If the entire young generation is described in the most democratic way, where is the majority? As, well, where they are is they're unmarried. They're not happy with each other. And you have a wonderful chapter on this issue of marital character. What does it mean to be a man or a woman in such a way that you long for and are capable of marriage and married life? And compared to that, what issues out of our radical democratization? As we see nowadays in popular music and at the movies, the modern idol is now the young woman, no longer the manly muscular man or the funny neurotic man or anything. The young woman is the new idol that dominates entertainment. That is, is in fact a reflection of reality. And indeed it is a, a late reflection. The arrival of women and majorities in college is a fact that goes back one generation. The entertainment is finally waking up to it. But society has not woken up to it. In your book, you lay out very well not just the ideologies that come with liberalism, with feminism, with sexual liberation, but also how does this manifest in the new girl order, in the new woman, the character that is praised and also practiced, the description of life in the elites of America. So please take us through that. Yeah, the chapter is called The New Problem with No Name. So I'm stealing a line from Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, which had a little chapter and concept called The Problem with No Name. This is the new problem with no name, the decline of marital character. I say there are two manifestations of it. One is an old one. We could call it a pre-civilized one, where people can't rise to the level of living and trusting together for the long term, of forming communities, because they're present-oriented and passionate and exceptionally manly and suspicious of one another. And you can see these uh, particular cultures in America, uh, in our urban and rural communities. I actually use two TV shows to illustrate it, The Wire and Justify. Now, I'm an older man, so The Wire is basically the last TV show that I've watched, <laughs> and it's from the early aughts set in Baltimore, and it's really about the African-American drug kingpins of Baltimore and how they interact with the police. And there are no friends, no trust, no community, no marriage, no love, very violent relationships between men and women, and you know, ultimately friends snitch on each other, get killed, kill one another, and the worst kind of self-centered kingpin arises at the end of that show. Those people can't rise to the level of long-term horizons, taking control of their own fate and responsibility for their own fate. And since they can't rise up, they're victims of fate. They can't maintain any kind of relationship. It's kind of an old story. You can see these things in early modern thinkers who complain about barbarians 
who can't rise to the level of marriage and they beat wives and rape is normal in the relationship between men and women. So I think that's an old problem, but it's coming to America and can't be ignored. And this has been noticed by many people. I mean, Charles Murray's coming apart is really at least partly about the white version of that problem. There are many other books in popular social science that go along the same thesis. But the meat of the chapter, I think, is what we could call a hyper-civilized marital character decline, one that we see in our suburbs, in our upper middle class. There, I would say, you have a quiet but very triumphant feminist character. Girls are prepared to have their life revolve around their careers, and they're prepared from youth to get good grades, to study hard, to be obedient, to be conscientious. That'll help you get into a good college. When you get into college, you'll get a good internship. And, you know, make sure you come and talk to the professor after you get a paper that's only a B plus and ask what you can do to help please that professor and get a higher grade. And then, you know, with that higher grade and a good resume padded with many things that are encouraged to be done, you can get a good internship. And then with a good internship, you'll graduate, maybe get an advanced degree, another credential wouldn't hurt, and work your way up the rungs of a company. And maybe by the time you're 28 or 29, you can be an associate director of a human resource department or in charge of something else in middle management. And we see this across the country. Young girls who are unmarried are out earning, young boys who are unmarried. And maybe at the end of the day, as a capstone to that experience that you've had at 30, 32, you might get married. And the marriage will be what they call a seesaw marriage, where the man and the woman will kind of take turns expressing themselves and enjoying their autonomy while the other does service to the community. And maybe you'll squeeze out a couple babies, one, two, make sure it doesn't harm your ability to go on vacation. So we have the career-oriented education culminating in what Andrew Sherlin calls the capstone marriage, which is not something at the foundation of your life, but something at the capstone of the other things that are important to your life. Now, these marriages last. The divorce rate among people, I would say, who embrace this vision of marriage is surprisingly very low. Others who are prepared with the same kind of character don't marry. We're getting to the point where it's about a third of the young middle-aged ladies in America aren't married. That is, people past the age of 44. That's another route for this character. Many don't marry. The ones that do marry, marriage is kind of tangential to their identity. And the marriage itself isn't the foundation of their lives, but rather it's kind of an alliance that moves forward instead of a community that grows together. Now, that's what the sociology says, and we can ask ourselves whether we see things like that on the ground. And I think, once again, uh, you have to say yes. Now, one of the advantages or disadvantages that I have when talking about this is that I live here in Boise, and you don't see as much of this in an advanced stage. You see it at a younger stage because we're about a generation behind here, I would say. When I talk to friends who live in New York, they start listing the number of female professionals that kind of adhere to this uh, particular model of the new woman and give me biographies of them. So it's very interesting and it's very common, but more common, I would say, in places where the beautiful people live, as opposed to out here in the provinces like Idaho, where ugly people like me live. <laughs> There's probably also something that is more up your alley is Titus. You know, there really is great depictions of this in modern cinema, as I understand. And on TV, I certainly see it on commercials, but I don't watch enough TV and see enough new movies to be able to speak to this. The concept that you were talking about, the female heroine, I know that as the Mary Sue complex. 
And the example that I used to illustrate this to my kids was that when we watched Star Wars, Luke Skywalker learned how to use the lightsaber, but he was kind of a doofus. You know, it took him like three years to do it. And uh, he was really struggling. And finally, after hard work and overcoming his own self-doubt, he learned how to become a master at the lightsaber. And in the new Star Wars movies, I've seen at least, the ladies who pick up the lightsaber, just like, oh, look at this. Oh, it turns on. Oh, I can defeat everyone who's been practicing this for their whole lives. And not only does everyone love her, but she's incredibly competent and strong and independent and lovely and lovable. And all the virtues are encapsulated. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The theme of entertainment in our times is the pretense that you can combine morality and power in unproblematic ways. That if you have really good feelings, then you will conquer everything. So you can be morally pure, inexperienced and also triumphant over every difficulty in life. That's a correlative of hysteria, as enthusiasm always is, of course. It shows what people desperately hope. Some hopes are reasonable, or at least plausible, and some hopes are utterly desperate. And the hope that you can just pick up something and be the best ever is nuttiness. But it describes in a certain way the ideological transformations that have to put these two elements together. To say on the one hand that the history of mankind has been oppression, whereas now we are trying this new thing that has never been done before, and it's going to be the greatest, the future is going to be amazing. And on the other hand, you also have to say the people who are going to make the future amazing are the people who have always been oppressed, who have always been weak and suffering. They will go from the position of no power to the position of absolute power, and they will be even purer, if at all possible, in the process. Now, this is nutty, but it's not, uh, on the other hand, rare that entertainment will eventually take on the opinions of elites, the opinions of especially academic elites and elites involved in the yapping-the-mouth business, without which no modern society can thrive. And so you get a kind of caricature of the new woman or the new girl in this sort of entertainment, which nevertheless contains the very, very important things that come out as beliefs, both in how the upper classes live and in the way society is supposed to be organized. You can probably have a good education system for boys or a good education system for girls, but having one for both is going to be very hard an education system that since the 80s has been dominated from cradle to PhDs by girls is probably going to be bad for boys. And if you run with that assumption, depressive as it might seem to the more enthusiastic, you just have to look up the numbers and see, do girls graduate at higher rates than boys? Yes, they do. Of course they do. That reveals that this is what the system is supposed to be. It rewards the things that girls are good at. It is not a bad thing that girls are good at the things that girls are good at. But it's also not a bad thing that boys are good at the things that boys are good at. The question is how to deal with the special powers of boys and girls in relationship to what a decent society longs for and what it needs in order to be organized and stable. This is where we lose the plot. As you so very well said, there is quite a lot of popular culture, and the best popular culture, entertainments, are actually about how hard it is to be American if you're not in the upper classes. All sorts of crazy things, damn right ancient, barbaric practices have returned and indeed dominate life for entire communities. This was not supposed to happen. This was not promised or indeed even threatened. But it is part of our lives. And I think there is a deep connection between the chaos we see in shows about hypermasculinity. Like you said, The Wire and Justified. There's also Sons of Anarchy that ran for however many seasons or any, any number of others. Indeed, if you want to push this far enough, you will end up with superheroes and their correlatives, the serial killer psychopaths that fascinate the American imagination. What happens if freedom and autonomy goes fully mad? 
one way to look at the distinction between rich and poor Americans is Americans over the age of 55 versus Americans under the age of 25. Not that many people start that rich. It takes decades of work to accumulate enough assets. Indeed, what is an asset in an old American is a liability in a young American, if he even has it, that is the mortgage, the house. And so this is in many ways a generational distinction, just like the transformation of ideology for elite America to feminism, to the new woman or the new girl, to achievement and triumph, is a new development that has affected the young generation in a way it did not affect people born in the Gen X or, of course, the boomers. So these new transformations will probably take some time to manifest themselves. But since you see the young people rioting and all the misery of the young people, there's a reason to believe that it's not just failing communities. It's not just hillbillies and inner city black people who are in trouble. If you look aside from the violence, which is of course very important, but it's not the only thing that matters, people are drawn to the popular culture of the worst communities, not of the best communities. Indeed, the best communities have no popular culture to speak of. The reason for that attraction is that spiritually, people feel that they are in the same place. So the suburban white boys, circa 89 or 90, discovered that rap music is the future. What do they have in common with black people who lived through the crack epidemic? It was also the only kind of pop culture that spoke directly and in praise of manliness. And white boys realized that they were cut out of elite America. And so they turned to this violent and angry music but then we have to ask ourselves, let's grant the premise for the sake of argument. Let's get rid of the patriarchy, even to the point where white boys feel that they are ghetto boys. Okay, are the young women who come out of this process happy? We can't simply look at poor people because we could say, well, the problem is poverty. Let us look at rich people. Let us look at, indeed, as you say, the seesaw marriage and the modern woman that puts career first and might achieve anything else on the side as a hobby, really, and something which you have to do without through your formative 30 years. These people are not happy, are they? Yeah, I mean, I wrote about this in The American Mind. It's basically an elaboration of a one sentence in the book, and uh, it's an article called The False Science of Feminism. And what I tried to do is two things, show that feminism has really delivered on its promises. Women are more career-oriented than they were, and they are more sexually adventurous than they were before feminism. And then I raised the question, well, what has this done to happiness? And there are some decent studies called meta-analyses of smaller studies, and they add them all up. And they look at questions like, are women more happy? Are they more depressed? Do they take more medication? Do they attempt suicide more? Uh, do they commit suicide more? And on all of those, there's this negative correlation between the goals of feminists and the measures of happiness. So you can take women in traditional societies where there is less, as they say, gender equity. You find that they are less independent, less sexually adventurous, and more happy and less depressed. And you take the modern countries where they have more of the goals of feminism, and women are generally less happy, more depressed, take more medication. I've seen some studies, one from the University of Minnesota, that suggested about 48% of undergraduates have already had some diagnosis for not depression, but mental health problems. So a broader category that includes things like anorexia and bulimia, but also depression. So that's an incredible thing. And if it's so pervasive, one would expect it to be a matter of a lot of public reflection. One would expect that gap between the promises and the deliverance to be present in art literature. And I don't see it much in American literature. 
But all the scholars who talk about this uh, call it a paradox. It's a real paradox. It's the paradox of female happiness. It's the paradox of suicide attempts. It's a paradox because feminism was supposed to deliver all these goods. And the conclusion that I draw from it, and I think you were alluding to this in some way, is that you know these things are always mixed goods. You can push out the balloon on one side, but it goes out on the other side, that you have some effect on human nature. And I think ultimately there is this mixed blessing that you give people independence and they're less happy. I think that's really just a fundamental core trade-off. You know, the reason that the powerless, if you want to think of it like this, or conservatives generally end up measuring way higher on happiness and are less depressed, even though they're powerless, more powerless politically, is that they seek to balance those things in ways that I would say progressives seek to emphasize the autonomy part to the disadvantages of the other things. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a great failure of art, but also a great opportunity for some artist. And maybe maybe I'll even take up the pen someday. The thought has crossed my mind of writing a modern-day Anna Karenina, where Anna doesn't have a family already, but she is very into her job as an advertising agency social media analyst. Yeah, that's a novel you come to a couple of times in the book because it's such a wonderful portrayal of the modern problem. Indeed, with the romantic novel from Rousseau to Jane Austen to Flaubert and Stendhal and Tolstoy, you see women are heroines because somehow the drama of modernity applies more to women. And you point this out in the book that in a certain way it's not specifically or simply feminism. It is a part of democracy that we wish for egalitarianism. And therefore we all politically look for some kind of symbol of democracy. After men got the right to vote and so forth, uh, well, women became the standard bearer of democracy. Women had to be brought to equality in the hopeful sense that equality means going up becoming better and society entirely becoming better. Unfortunately, this is more difficult than ideology or even hope would lead us to believe. You could say that feminism doesn't work without antidepressants. I think ordinary people realize that that's an indictment, but it is impermissible to even think about it, so to speak. Feminism and indeed this new elite ideology as a whole does not work without the therapeutic pharmacological state. And in important ways, that would be an end to democracy. It would be uglier powers of modern science drugging people into putting up with their fate. That's a reason to worry about whether any of this can work out. Indeed, if things don't work out for the poor, it might be that the elites are assholes. But if things don't work out for the elites either, at the basic level of can these people live with themselves without drugging themselves, then we have worse trouble than we bargained for. And so the, the modern drama yeah, and I think that women... I, yeah. I, mean, I, I just think that there's crisis. There are other outlets uh, aside from the antidepressant outlets, and you know it also can admit in a kind of political agitation or fanaticism. It's just one of the tragedies or facts about life is that there's just only so many things you can do that can be fulfilling or make you happy in the Aristotelian sense of being completed. Family life is one of those things, and some jobs can be that thing, and a life of piety can be that thing, and and maybe some very highfalutin hobbies can be that thing. But there are just only a limited number of goods that you can pursue that could possibly satisfy you as a human being. And when you pursue goods that aren't as good as you thought they were, that's a disappointment. 
And when there is pressure put on you to pursue that good, even though it ultimately isn't what would stir your soul, that ends up being a problem. And it can lead to ideologies that are radical, and it can lead to genuine personal problems, and then the therapeutic culture as well. The way I kind of think of it is that we're talking about the problem basically of three out of four women. There is a subset of women, and I think once again, studies bear this out, both careful observation do, but then studies do, so that must be true, right? And there are some who can be perfectly satisfied living, putting career first, and would have a difficult time reconciling themselves to something else. And feminism has been great for that swath. However, for people seeking balance in their life, and that ends up being three out of four, the pressures end up being toward imbalance and hence a kind of unhappiness that yields a variety of other things. Yeah, this comes out in the voting too. Married women are, as a majority, Republican voters, although it's contested. Unmarried women, by a vast, vast majority, vote Democrat. Now, that suggests maybe unmarried men will soon vote Republican and we will have a war of the disgraced daughters and the dishonored sons of America, something like that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in a way that would be melodramatic. That's what entertainment, that's what novels would show. Uh, reality hopefully will be merciful. But these kinds of discrepancies do show that we are in a situation where most young women are miserable with the way things are and are at least half tempted to radicalize the situation as a solution to their problem because unhappy people are almost always angry. And that anger leads to a political expression. In a way, people feel duped, as you say in your book. What if women wake up and say, well, we were sold a false bill of goods. We were promised all sorts of things for turning our lives into this image of career autonomy in some fantastical sense, but really career. The career is not negotiable. Years of discipline for schooling and corporation are not negotiable. And what do you get for it? You have put all this stuff into your fantasy, and there's no way you can turn back the time. It might be that people, even as they go through this, and especially as they come out of it, are quite angry and vengeful for that reason. Yes, you've pointed to the sentence of the book that I think I worked the hardest on. <laughs> and tried, in a way, disclaim total ownership of the thought that I put forward there. But I do think that the issue that you're putting your finger on there is the issue for the next generation of people who turn 50. And I see basically people right now who are about 35. They're not yet out of childbearing years. But the number who are unmarried at that point, you know, is at a historic high. It's difficult to know precisely what it is. I've seen numbers as high as 44%. In a way, I just can't believe that and won't believe it till I see better proof. But it's a historically unique situation. It's never happened before that that many people have been alienated from basically the most fundamental social institution of every political community, the building block of it. And how do they age? Does age come with rage? Does age come with regrets? How do regrets get ex Now, maybe it won't. I mean, it's possible. But, you know, there were canaries in coal mines in the 90s when there were a spate of books that came out, or written by career women, I should say, who had gone through their careers childless and kind of bemoaned it. I've got a list of those in the book. What happens where that number isn't 5%, but when it's 35% on its way to 50%? I think that is, as I say, a matter for great artistic investigation. It can't really be handled in a book like mine, I don't think. The problem is that it's one of the things that can't be talked about or treated artistically.
But I think it's, you know, one of the crucial issues of the next time, if I can say it like that. And there's a genuine market for it because it's a real social phenomenon. Yes, indeed. This is something that we will all live with or at least live through. And we feel this as democracy advances. The things that happen are nobody's fault. Life is not stuff you do. It's stuff that happens to you. Like in the Woody Allen joke, life is what happens while you're making plans. uh, that leads to a certain terror that maybe it's all fated, maybe it's some kind of chance, maybe you're the plaything of forces and you're not really you, you can't do things with yourself or for yourself, things happen to you. We seem to be turning in that direction and hence the terrible social rage. Feminism was the last great promise that it would create a new society, it would indeed revolutionize men and children in the process too, it would revolutionize all institutions, everything would become more caring, more cooperative, nicer. Niceness, that's a great thing, it's it's the American way, be nice. But uh, now it seems to be failing, and reactions here vary. Some people want to go back to whatever it was like before, some people want to radicalize the transformation, we didn't go far enough. And many people are just bewildered and don't realize how did we end up in a situation that nobody expected. But as you say, it's also the case that many, many people, and soon enough it will be most Americans, grew up in this situation and they don't know what it was like back before, whenever back before was. Of course, democracy's orientation to youth and to the future exacerbates that tendency. In a certain way, we will have to start, as you say, wondering, is it at all possible to have art that is popular and that reveals these fundamental conflicts. In the time of Tolstoy, you had this Rousseauian idea. Romantic love in politics equals adultery plus suicide for the woman. Incredibly high hopes, that enthusiasm leads you to do mad things, and then you can't live with yourself, and you can't live with society, and maybe society won't let you live with it. That simple equation, romance in politics equals adultery plus suicide, doesn't obtain men commit the suicides, not women. And it is women who make and then break the marriages as a rule and indeed dominate the institutions of education and corporation America. But somewhere that conflict would be expressed. A lot of people paid the price and don't have something to show for it. And it is indeed somehow necessary to reveal this in some public acceptable way. And in the past that used to be the novel or cinema. How do we talk about private life, so important in modern times, in public? Well, we'll do it through a novel or through a movie. I don't know what we will be doing in the 21st century, but it does seem like our political and our academic and journalistic, therefore, powers of explanation, cajoling, persuading, planning, executing, have failed us. This is not a society we plan for or can deal with, and we need some other kinds of resources. And perhaps it is therefore also a very good time to return to the study of character, because at least at an individual level, that is what we have to deal with. How will I live in light of the choices I can make? What can I expect? What should I expect of myself? What should I demand even of myself? And so I will leave our audience with uh, the title of your book, The Recovery of Family Life. This is indeed a great necessity for America, both in thought and in deed. I'm not sure that in that sense you were looking to write a timely book, but you have. Even people who take it as a tract rather than analysis will find much to discover in it that they can nod along with, but also be challenged by. It is something that made me think about what am I doing? And uh, it made me read entire passages to my wife and talk about them. 
figure out to what extent is this what we're going through or what the world around us is like and what we're going to do about it. And so I heartily recommend it to our audience. Just go on Amazon or wherever you buy book and buy Scott Yinner's The Recovery of Family Life. All right, Scott, we have been a wonderful conversation here focusing on one chapter in your book. And we'll have to leave it to our audience to go and buy the book and read it. Thank you very much for joining me and thank you for this conversation. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Be well. All the best. Bye-bye.